Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. I'll get you a little bit of a head start on us. We've been teaching for the last, uh, well, several weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long. But uh, a series that we've kind of picked a title for, um, God's Attitude Towards Sickness and Healing. And we've been identifying certain points and, and um, uh, scriptural uh, topics regarding healing and, and what it says to us about God's attitude toward uh, healing the sick and, and so forth. Last Sunday evening, we started off with, uh, with kind of uh, some, uh, well, for lack of a better way to say it, some bullet points about if healing is not for all, then why? And then we went through certain things. Let me cover those real quickly. Take about five minutes or less and, and cover those real quickly because we want to shift gears a little bit, kind of stay on the same line but uh, go a little bit different direction. So if healing is not for everybody, then why did Jesus identify himself with the serpent of brass in John chapter 3? That's uh, referring to Numbers chapter 21 when Moses uh, was instructed by the Lord that the only thing that would stop the plague among the people, the fiery serpents that come in among the people, was to make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. Jesus said that was a type of him. Well, that serpent of brass provided an atonement, the Bible says. It provided a means whereby they could do two things. Number one, be forgiven from their sin, which caused the problem to begin with. And then secondly, to be healed of their sickness. So what the question is, if healing is not for everybody, why did Jesus identify with something that provided healing for the people? The second thing that we, that we pointed out was, if healing is not for everybody, then why does Matthew eight seventeen say that Jesus healed all that were sick to show what the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 looks like. Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 shows us, uh, well, actually the whole 53rd chapter of Isaiah shows us what our redemption in Christ would look like from Isaiah's point of view before it happened. And it says, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So at the very same verses that say that Jesus paid the price for sin says that he paid the same price for sickness, which was the shedding of his blood. And Matthew eight seventeen, New Testament scripture, says that Jesus, to show us that fulfillment, what that fulfillment looks like, didn't leave one sick person behind. He healed all that were sick. So that shows us that the atoning work of Jesus is for all when it comes to sin and when it comes to sickness. Another thing that we looked at is if healing is not for everybody, then why is Jesus identified as our Passover? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. The Old Testament clearly says that Passover provided healing for the people, not just a covering so that they could escape the judgment of God that was rightly due those that were separated from God and spiritually dead, but that it also provided healing for the body. If that healing is not for us now, then why does the Bible identify Jesus as our Passover? Another point that we looked at was if healing is not for everybody, then why did so many people come to Jesus in his earthly ministry asking the people that were coming for healing, why did they ask for mercy? Now, many in the church world will say today that healing has passed away or that, that miracles have passed away and things don't work the same way they did when Jesus was here on the earth or in the early days of the church. But has anybody ever said that the mercy of God has passed away? No, the Bible says over and over again very clearly that the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Time after time after time, people came to Jesus looking for healing, but they'd ask for mercy. And Jesus would ask them, what is it you want me to do for you? Because mercy can be a, any number of ways. What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, that we might receive our sight, or Lord, that we might be healed, whatever the case was. 
or my daughter delivered, whatever, whatever it was that the individual came for. But they came asking for mercy. Now, the question is very simply this. Has the mercy of God changed in a negative way toward mankind since Jesus has been raised from the dead? No, the Bible says we have a high priest that we're supposed to come to for mercy. It says he is a faithful and merciful high priest. Those are the two attributes that are identified with him. He's faithful and he's merciful. So we're supposed to come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. Why wouldn't the mercy include healing for today? Now, as I said, I want to change gears a little bit, follow the same line, but a little bit different direction. And I've got another question regarding God's attitude, present day attitude or attitude toward the present day church regarding healing. And that is if God doesn't intend the present day church to heal, then why is healing in the great commission? Mark chapter 16. Verse 15, Jesus said unto them, this is after Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, not might, shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Why is healing included in the signs of those that go to preach the gospel if it's not part of the Great Commission? In the same way that verse 16 says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, it says they shall lay hands on the sick and they, the sick, shall recover. Based on the same thing, and that is belief in the preaching of Jesus. So if healing is not supposed to be for the present day church, if healing has been done away with, then why didn't Jesus know about that when he talked about it being a part of the Great Commission? Folks, that's a question that bears an answer, that deserves an answer. Amen? Here's another question. If Jesus, if God doesn't intend the present day church to heal, then why did Jesus tell his disciples to do the same works he did when the gospel speaks so much of his healings? In John chapter 14 and verse 12, Jesus, on the last night that he was with his disciples, uh, is giving them some specific information about how things are going to work when he goes to the Father. And he said, uh, well, let's start in verse 10. He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, that I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. It's very important to realize that Jesus didn't claim credit for being the originator of the works. Now, certainly the works are operating through him. So in that sense, he's doing the healing. But he's saying, I'm not the one that's initiating this. It's not my power that's initiating this. That's very important because Jesus is saying, I'm not healing because I'm the son of God. He said, I'm healing because the father that dwells in me is doing those works. Now, how did the father dwell in him? He's talking about being anointed of the Holy Ghost, which happened when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Everybody that was there bear record of the fact that there was a, a, something came from heaven like a bird would fly down from the sky and landed on Jesus and stayed there. And there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but folks, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, all three manifestations, all three personalities of the Godhead are present. Jesus, the son of God, is there in the flesh. The Holy Ghost is there descending on Jesus in, in bodily shape as a dove. And God, the father, is there. Because it's his voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
From that point, Jesus began doing the works. Now, the question has to be asked, why didn't he do the works before then? He was just as much the son of God before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River as afterwards. Why didn't he do any miracles before then? Why wasn't he known as a healer from the time he was a young boy? See, if Jesus was healing because he was the son of God, he could have been healed any time after he was born into the earth because he was the son of God. But if he's healing for a different reason, and he said he is, if he said the works, including the healing works that take place in and through him, are taking place because the Father is dwelling in him, then that means anyone, anyone, anyone that the Father chooses to indwell and to anoint can do the same works. And that's the very reason that Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, the works that I do shall shall you do also, or he that believeth on me. The believer, in other words. Let's keep reading. Verse 10 again, he said, Believest thou not that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. God's given me the words to say. And the works that I do, it's the Father in me that's doing them through me. Verse 11, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the work's sake. Now, folks, it's also important, in my opinion, to understand that even in Jesus' day, Jesus being the Son of God here in the flesh, anointed with the Holy Ghost without measure, doing works that no man has ever done or ever will do again in, uh, in number. We may do the works and even greater works than those, but as far as collectively is concerned, nobody's going to outstrip Jesus when the works of God are concerned. He was anointed in every area and every aspect. You and I have the spirit by measure. So nobody's going to do the same works as Jesus did collectively. But yet even Jesus, being who he was, doing the work that he was doing here on the earth, sent by the heavenly father to be God's emissary, to be the revelation of God in the earth. Jesus said, if you can't believe me for any other reason, believe me because of the works that you're seeing being done. If the works were necessary and important for people to believe in Jesus, why would they be any less important for him to, for them to believe in us when we're preaching Jesus risen? It would seem to me that God left us out if he didn't intend for us to do the same works. If he didn't provide us a supernatural or miraculous means of proving to people that Jesus is alive, then he sure favored Jesus over us, doesn't he? Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I like the fact that it says verily, verily. In other words, it means of a truth, surely. It's the strongest emphatic statement that he can make. This is the way that it is. It's the way that it's always going to be. You need to accept and understand that this is the way that it is. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. Another way to say that is believing in his name. He that believeth on me or believeth in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. He goes further in verse 13 to tell how those works are going to be done. And whatsoever you shall ask, this is not the word request. It's not the word for prayer. It's the word that means call for, require, demand. Whatever you place a demand on in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask, call for, require, demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if you're one of the 12 and you're sitting at the table, well, one of the 11, Judas is already gone by now. But if you're one of the 11 that are left and Jesus starts talking about doing the same works that he did, 
What do you think? What works do you think he's talking about? How many of them do you think are sitting there saying, Oh, praise the Lord, I always wanted to teach. Yet the Bible talks a lot about Jesus' teaching words. How many of them do you think are thinking, Wow, that means we can walk on the water like Peter did for a few moments. How many do you think are thinking, does that mean we can even raise the dead like Jesus did Lazarus? How many do you think imagine or think back to the times where Jesus healed the blind and raised the cripples up? What would you have thought with your knowledge of the Gospels, just having read? And, the, and John said, if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world couldn't contain the book. So they've got a lot more to draw on just than what we have record of. What would you be thinking when Jesus talks about doing the same works that he did? Especially since he just said, if you can't believe me because of what I'm saying, believe me for the work's sake. What works do you think he means? I don't think there's anybody, any fair-minded person that would, could conclude on any basis that they're thinking anything other than display of God's miracle working power. And that miracle working power was shown upon the sick day after day after day after day. So if God doesn't intend healing to be a part of the present day church, why in the world did he leave us a record that Jesus said the church would do that? Now I know some make a distinction between the church when the apostles were alive and the church today. But God doesn't make that distinction. The Bible says that there's, a, there's one family. There's a family in heaven and in earth. Just one family, just one church. The church is his family. I, tra- I take for granted that you know that, but I guess I need to say it. The church is his family. And the Bible says God has one family, not an early family and a later family. He has one family. Part of that family is in heaven. The apostles and those we read about in the book of Acts would be a part of that group. Another part of his family is here on the earth. That's you and me that's still alive. But we're all part of the same family. Now, the Bible says also that God is no respecter of persons. If that's true, then that means God didn't equip the first part of his family any better than he equipped the last part of his family. And really, if you think about that, that wouldn't make sense anyway because Jesus said that the work or the equipment or the miraculous working power of God was based on believing in his name. So if the early church or what's known as the early church, if the apostles had greater power available to them than we do today, then that can mean only one thing, and that is the name of Jesus is weaker today than it was when he gave it to them. Because he didn't say, the works that I do shall you do also because you're great. He didn't say, the works that I do shall you do also because you're apostles, and it's important for people to see this in the beginning. He said, the works that I do shall you do also because you believe in my name. Well, then what would have had to have changed? for the supernatural or miraculous equipment to be different. There's only one thing that could change that would make it different, and that's the name of Jesus. I don't believe the name of Jesus has lost power. Do you? I believe the church has lost faith in it to a great degree. But I don't believe the name of Jesus has lost power. So when Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, clearly he knows that they're thinking miracles and healings and healing work. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 10. Let's see what the disciples understood about Jesus and his work here on the earth. Acts chapter 10 tells us the story of how that Peter went down to Cornelius' house as directed by a vision from heaven. 
He gets to Cornelius' house. Cornelius has seen a vision the day or a couple of days before with an angel that directed him to send to Joppa to find Peter who would preach to him and tell him what he should do to get saved. And Peter, while he's preaching, said in verse 38, Acts 10, verse 38, this is part of Peter's preaching in response to the vision that Cornelius had to send for him and the vision that Peter had to be willing to go down to a Gentile's house. Peter preaches about Jesus and says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. Doing good would be works, isn't it? Doing good would have something to do with the works that Jesus did, wouldn't it? Peter's part of the group over in John chapter 14 that heard him say, heard Jesus say, he that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. Peter has participated in those works because in Acts chapter 3 he tells about how that he and John met the guy at the beautiful gate of the temple that was crippled and healed the man, raised him up. Furthermore, the Bible tells us in some of the following chapters about how God used Peter to minister to the sick in, a, in miraculous ways. It tells us even by the shadow of Peter that many that were laying on cots and beds and cripples and so forth were healed by Peter's shadow. So if there's anybody that we have record of in the book of Acts that has experience with doing the works of Jesus, and you could even make the argument that in one case, at least it by the healing by shadow, it's a greater work than what Jesus did. We don't ever have any record of Jesus healing anybody by shadow, but Peter did. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not exalting Peter. He was probably amazed when the shadow fell on somebody and they got healed. He didn't know it was a work that God was going to do. But you could at least in one aspect say that that was a greater work than Jesus did just by the fact that Jesus didn't do the same thing. I'm not sure if that's everything that greater work means, but it might be part of it. Wouldn't you agree? So who's going to know better about doing the works of Jesus or greater works than Jesus did than Peter? And notice what Peter says about Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Notice that Peter recognizes that Jesus' works were based on the anointing and the power that he received from the Holy Ghost. It does not say how God sent his son Jesus who did good works. He magnifies. Peter, by the Holy Ghost, preaching to the, to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, magnifies the fact that it was the Holy Ghost anointing and power that did the works. Folks, that's key. Most of the church thinks Jesus healed because he was the son of God or healed to prove that he was the son of God. But that's not what the Bible says. Again, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. What did he do? Well, part of what he did was healing, doing good and healing. There were other good works that he did, but healing was certainly a part of what he did. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing. Who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil. Why? For God was with him. Not for he was the son of God. For God was with him. For God was with him. Now notice what this tells us. Not only does it tell us the thing that we've already mentioned, but it tells us where sickness and disease fall in relation to God. It says that everybody that Jesus healed was anointed, uh, was uh, oppressed of the devil. Jesus was anointed with healing power to heal all those that were oppressed of the devil. Now, folks, you need to understand something in that as we touched on this this morning. Um, and that is the Bible says that God never changes. 
on several occasions in several different places, it says there's no variableness with God, neither any shadow of turning. In other words, there's not one chance in eternity that God can take both sides of an issue. It's impossible. God is one way, and he is only one way. So whatever issue it is, we're talking about sickness and disease, so we'll take that as an example. Whatever issue, or whatever side of the sickness and disease issue God is on, he never changes, which means he cannot make people sick and heal them at a different time. It's impossible. God said of himself, I'm God, I change not. Now, I don't know who thinks they have the authority to say, well, God said he doesn't change, but we say he does. I, I, have, I can draw no other conclusion that other than there will come a time where somebody will get to answer for that statement should they make it. But the Bible's real clear. The Bible says there is no variable to this. There is no shadow of turning. God is one and only one way. Furthermore, James 1.17 says God is good and he's the father of lights, which means if healing is good in Acts 10.38 then God being good in Acts in uh, James one seventeen would have to be healing. Wouldn't it? Same Holy Ghost inspired both writers to write about Jesus or write about God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, James one seventeen says, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In other words, God is good and he can only be good. The Holy Ghost tells us in Acts 10, 38, that good, doing good includes healing. Which means if the Bible is true, it's impossible for God to make anybody sick. Impossible. Beyond the realm of reason, beyond the realm of possibility. Oh, but, but Pastor Mike, nothing's impossible with God. Folks, there are a lot of things that are impossible with God. Violating his word is one of them. There's nothing impossible for God's power to do according to his word. But there are a lot of things God can't do. He can't violate his word. He can't usurp a person's will. He can't make you get saved if you refuse. Now, why is that? Why, God, why can't God do that? Well, the Bible is real clear on that too because he's exalted his word above his name. In other words, he's limited his power by what he said he would do. So Peter, who knows more about doing the works of Jesus and even greater works than anybody we have record of from the early days of the church, said that Jesus went about doing good. The works of Jesus were going doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. John, who was part of the group in John chapter 14 also, in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 8, says in the last part of the verse, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, folks, isn't that saying the same thing in different words that Acts 10.38 says concerning sickness and disease? Jesus was manifested. He came to the earth, was anointed of the Holy Ghost in power for one purpose, and that was to destroy the works of the devil. What works did he do to destroy the devil's works? He healed the sick. Now, I guess the question needs to be asked, at what point did God and the devil change sides? Because the modern day church says that God makes people sick to teach them something. Now in Jesus' day, the devil made people sick and God healed them. But some in the modern day church would say it's the other way around. 
God's the one making people sick now. I don't know about the devil healing, but God's the one making people sick. Folks, God and the devil have not changed sides. They can't change sides. God can't change his nature. He's good and he's only good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from God. Amen? So if God didn't intend for the present day church to heal the sick, why in the world did Jesus tell us to do the same works when his works were clearly healing those that were oppressed of the devil and destroying the devil's works in people's bodies? Here's the next one. If God doesn't intend the present day church to heal, why does James chapter 5 provide a means of healing for any and all in the church who are sick? Look with me over to James chapter 5 verse 14. Is any sick among you? Who's James writing to? He's writing to the church. Specifically those that are scattered abroad. But he's writing to Christians. So he says, is any sick among you? I like the fact that the question implies that there shouldn't be. Now, as Brother Hagin used to say, he's certainly not writing to a modern-day crowd. If he's writing to a modern-day crowd, he wouldn't ask, is there any sick among you? He'd say, now the 50 or 60% of you that are sick, I have some instruction for you. That's not what he said. Is any sick among you? The implication is there should not be. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. Save, being saved from sickness is healing. This word save is also translated heal and, or heal or make whole in other places in the New Testament. It's talking about a reparation or a restoration from a diseased condition. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Here's a question that Brother Hagin was asked by the Lord when... Uh, when he was believing God for his own healing and, and, uh, and so forth, he was on the, the sickbed and uh, still trying to figure out how to receive and, and, and how to contact God to grab hold of his healing and so forth. And he got to the place where um, um, some, he had had a couple of visits from some of the local pastors and, and they had put the light out, as he described, and, and uh, just taken hope away from him and so forth. And he was aware of the fact that, uh, that some of the churches, most, well, the the only two churches that he was familiar with, both priests that healing had been done away with. And the Lord asked him a question. This was in relation to Mark 11. But he, um, uh, Mark 11, verse 23 and 24, he said, or I'm sorry, it was in relation to Mark chapter 5, the woman with issue of blood. The Lord asked him a question about verse 34, Mark 5, 34, where Jesus said, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace, be whole of thy plague. And Jesus asked him a question, just spoke to his heart from the inside and said, did you notice that her faith made her whole? And Brother Hagin had to stop, and, and, and he said that he had to go back and look at it himself. He said, no, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't notice that at all. So he struggled. He had very limited use of his hands at that time. So he struggled to get back to Mark chapter 5 and, uh, and look at it, and he sought for himself. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. And so he said, well, that is what it says. I didn't notice that. That is what it says. And then the Lord asked him this. He said, have you ever heard anybody say, that faith's been done away with. He said, no. No, I've never heard anybody preach that. I've heard him preach that miracles have been done away with. I've heard it preached that, that uh, healing's been done away with. But I've never heard anybody preach or say or claim that faith's been done away with. And the Lord answered him back. He said, no, and you never will either. Because if there is no faith, if faith's been done away with, then there's no means to receive Jesus. 
nobody can be saved. There is no salvation. There is no church. There is nobody that will ever preach that faith's been done away with. And if her faith made her whole, then your faith, which will never be done away with, can make you whole. Brother Hagin said it's one of the greatest lessons he learned, one of the first lessons he learned on the subject of faith. Well, if faith can't be done away with, and nobody preaches that faith has been done away with, then why would the prayer of faith not save the sick today? And notice that this is for anybody. Is any among you sick? Is any among you sick? Is any among the church sick? Well, here's a remedy for that. Who would claim that these verses are not a remedy for sickness? Clearly they are. And why would God, and I know the the argument, I know people say, well, that was in the early days. Those were in the days of the apostles. James was one of the apostles, not one of the 12, but he was one of the original apostles that the church was built on. And so things worked like that in his day. Well, then why did God save the letter for us? Well, because there are other things in the letter that still do belong to us. It aggravates the stew out of me how people want to pick and choose things about God when the Bible is either true or it's a lie. If it's true, it's all true. If it's a lie, then the whole thing's a lie. Because the whole thing purports to be inspired by the Holy Ghost, which means it has to be true. So you choose for yourself. But God's position, God's attitude is, is any sick among you, let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over them with anointing with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall, 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 shall save or heal the sick. Now, folks, is there any difference between Jesus and the Great Commission saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And him saying concerning the sick, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Isn't shall the same in both verses? I mean, wouldn't we be doing the, the, the unsaved and injustice by saying, well, if you believe and we'll pray, we'll see if it works so that you can get saved. Now, the Bible says that Jesus will in no wise cast anyone out. He that cometh into me, unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Well, then where did we get the idea that he would cast the sick away for any reason whatsoever when the Bible says the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick? Where did we get that? Well, there's an answer to that question. We got that from our failure to get results. But if we fail to get results, what does that mean? It means the church has forgotten how to pray the prayer of faith. But that can be easily remedied because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Amen? He goes further and says, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. Thank God it's his responsibility, not ours. Notice it does not say, And the Lord shall raise him up by 10 o'clock in the morning. The Lord shall raise him up by the end of the week. Now, folks, I'm just like you. I'd like it to be by the end of the week or by the first thing in the morning. But that's not the part we control. What the Bible says is the Lord shall, shall, shall raise him up. Notice the last part. It says, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice the connection of healing with the forgiveness of sins. Why would that connection be made? Because the same power that forgave sins, which was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, is what healed the sick, provided healing for the sick. He goes further in verse 16 and says, confess your faults. The word false is the word sins. 
Confess your sins one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why does he talk about the righteous man? Because the righteous man is the one that stays in fellowship with God. Now, I don't believe for a minute that this is talking about go around telling everybody what you did wrong. That just creates problems in life. But it is talking about if you have ought against somebody, if you have something against your brother, then go confess it and make it right. And then the implication is those two come together and pray for each other that they might be healed. Again, the implication is that might be the cause for sickness in the church. Harboring unforgiveness or ill will toward one another. Not always the case, certainly. Sometimes people are sick just because we get attacked of the devil. But it certainly takes care of the possibility that we open the door by stepping outside of love. But does God say, well, too bad for you. You step outside of love, so you just have to maintain this and stay sick forever. No. This is clear it up. Clear the channel and make a way for healing for each other. Amen? Sounds to me like God had a pretty specific plan for the church regarding healing and recovery, doesn't it? All right, here's another question. If God doesn't intend the present-day church to, to, to heal, why did God set healings in the church as a ministry gift? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives a, a list of different ministries that God set in the church. And he says, beginning in verse 28, and God has set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets. Brother Hagin used to say, and I, I, I can't see any, anything that would refute this, that he's talking about the chronological order that God set these things in the church, not an order of importance. We see lists in the Bible of ministry gifts, and people try to get to establish, well, this one's more important than that one, and, and all that kind of stuff. And God doesn't, doesn't operate that way. But this seems to be, and, it, and as far as I can tell, holds true, Brother Hagin said that this seems to be the chronological order that God set ministry gifts in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles. Thank God there's a gift or a ministry gift of miracles in the church. Then gifts of healings. Thank God those are in, set in the church too. Now those ministry, uh, ministry gifts of healings are set in the church just like apostles, prophets, and teachers. Now, why does the church get to pick and choose which ones still last for today? If God's the one that set them in the church, isn't God responsible for making sure that they last? If you compare this with what uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says about the list over there of ministry gifts, it says that the reason that they're set in the church is to perfect the saints until we all come into the unity of the faith. Would anybody claim that that's already taken place? Till we all come into the unity of the faith unto a perfect man, completely spiritually mature. Anybody want to claim that the body of Christ is spiritually mature? Well, man, I'd have to check somebody's sanity records if came up with that kind of claim. Yet the church says, well, we don't have that stuff nowadays. Well, God set them in the church. It tells us how long he set them in there for, and that is till we come to the unity of faith unto a perfect man. In other words, until the end of the church age. And God has said in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps governments, diversities of tongues. All these are set in the church as ministry gifts or ministry offices. 
Some are public ministry offices. Some are private ministry offices. Some operate in front of the people. Some operate behind the scenes. But God set each one in the church. Well, if God didn't intend the church to do miracles or God didn't intend the church to heal, why in the world did he have a separate ministry office set up for that purpose? Seems like God would understand not to work against himself, doesn't it? No, thank God they're set in the church. I have one final question to ask before we close, and that is, if God did not intend for the present-day church to heal, then why does Galatians chapter 3 clearly teach us that he redeemed everyone from the curse of the law when Deuteronomy 28 most specifically identifies sickness as a part of that curse? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ hath, past tense, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree that or so that here's why he did it so that the blessing of abraham might come on the gentiles through jesus christ and that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith bible says not only did abraham walk in divine health but he laid hands on the sick and healed them that's part of the blessing of abraham Deuteronomy 28, as I said, specifically mentions that sickness is a part of the curse of the law. It's not the only thing that chapter 28 says is a part of the curse of the law, but it mentions it to a great degree. It mentions 13 individual specific cases of sickness. And then verse 61 of Deuteronomy 28 says, also every sickness not mentioned in this book of the law is part of the curse too. Every sickness. So Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from every sickness, whether known or unknown to mankind. They're always discovering new things, you know. But Jesus paid the price, the single price, to redeem mankind from sickness, according to the Bible, to redeem mankind from sickness, whether it's a known disease or whether something new comes along down the road. Christ has redeemed us. From the curse of the law. Specifically as far as our discussion is concerned. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of sickness. Being made a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Thank God through the sacrifice and the crucifixion. And even the resurrection of Jesus. We are redeemed from every sickness. That ever will be known to mankind. Hallelujah. I'm not under the curse. I'm not under the curse. For Jesus has set me free. For sickness of health and for poverty wealth. Since Christ has ransomed me. That's a song that Dr. Lillian Yeoman's sister got by the Holy Ghost. You'd rather hear me say it than sing it. So that's why I just spoke it out rather than doing otherwise. But oh, let me tell you. We need to get those words stuck down on the inside of us. We need to be so full of God's word that when the devil attacks us, no matter how long it seems to linger, no matter how long it seems to last, no matter what it appears, that that sickness has taken hold of us and and healing is not manifesting, forget all that. We need to come out. We need to be so full of the word that any time pressure is applied, the word comes out of us like water out of a sponge. I'm not under the curse. I'm not under the curse. For Jesus has set me free. For sickness, I've health, and for poverty, wealth, since Christ has ransomed me. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to know your word. What a privilege it is to see the truth of Jesus' sacrifice 
the shedding of his blood, the going to the cross for us to redeem us not only from sin, but also from sickness and poverty. Thank you, Father, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so we can say and declare with confidence, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, we are not under the curse. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for this Easter season, this day when the world stops and pauses just a moment or two from their daily routines to recognize that this is the day that commemorates Jesus' resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the precious and wonderful name that you've given us, the name that's above every name, the name through which we do the same works as you did, healing works, and even greater works, whatever that might mean. We thank you, Father, that healing is a part of the DNA of the church, that you've made a means and an ordinance, established an ordinance in the church for the sick to become well. Because the prayer of faith always heals the sick. Lord, we thank you for your power that's at work in us now, even though that might not be seen with the natural eye. We thank you for that which we've believed. We thank you that the quickening power of the Holy Ghost is renewing our mortal flesh. I thank you, Father, that the divine life of God, the Zoe life of God flows through our veins permeating every fiber of our being and every cell of our bodies, restoring us to divine health from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. Thank you, Father, that we're redeemed from the curse of the law. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for spending your Easter morning and or evenings with us. You're dismissed.